Today, my guest is Dr. Heather Hall. Dr. Hall is a board-certified adult psychiatrist with over 30 years of experience. She specializes in treating complex trauma and combines her expertise in psychopharmacology and psychotherapy to develop treatment plans tailored to each unique patient. Before establishing her private practice, Dr. Hall was an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and at UC Davis. She currently serves on the board of directors of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation and is the co-chair of the ISSTD's Public Health Committee, along with chairing the annual conference committee. Dr. Hall is a graduate of Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. She completed her medical training at Drexel University in Philadelphia and her psychiatric training at the Institute of Pennsylvania Hospital. Heather and I have connected over years of serving on the ISSTD board together. I've always been impressed by her commitment to the organization, to clinical work, and to supporting populations that are all too often neglected and underserved. Heather is here to share some of her insights from working with the most complex psychiatric conditions. So you're in for a treat. Let's welcome Heather to the show. Hello, and welcome to the How We Can Heal podcast. My name is Lisa Danilchuk, and I created this podcast to share deep conversations that encourage us to move through life's toughest circumstances. Let's get talking about how we can heal. All right. Welcome, Heather Hall. I'm so happy to have you here on the How We Can Heal podcast. Thank you well, so thank much you. for joining me today. Thank you for asking me. Yes. So I'm curious and I want people, you know, I was, we were just at the ISSTD conference and you presented some really compelling presentations and I want to share it with people. I want people to see um, dissociation, schizophrenia, some of the systemic betrayal and racism through the lens that, that you see it. Uh, I think it's really compelling. And one of those things, kind of like dissociation in my mind, where once you get it, you're kind of like, duh. <laughs> like Once you see it spelled out for you, it, it makes so much sense. So that was how I felt listening to you speak. And, and I hope folks listening feel similarly. But I wanted to just start with a little bit about you. What made you want to become an MD psychiatrist? Hmm. Um, I think it was because I was always sort of drawn to learning about the human body. I was very interested in that as a child. And it just made sense that I wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. And I never thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist, though. But it's interesting that um, when I was in college, I took this course on Beethoven. And we had to write a, a paper on some aspect of Beethoven's life. And way, way back then, I chose to write a paper on Beethoven's nephew, who huh. um, had, became, had made a suicide attempt or something like this. Oh, so it was just fascinating to me how Beethoven's nephew could have done that, right? And so it's interesting that I was in, so it's, inter it's, it's interesting that even back then, before I even knew there was what a psychiatrist was, I was kind of interested in those kinds of questions. And so yeah. that when I went to med school and was interested in many different aspects of medicine, but then when I did my first rotation in psychiatry, I just felt this incredible affinity for it. I just felt like understood the patients so um, that almost naturally. So it was just an interesting thing. And I just loved it from my very first rotation in it and decided to be a psychiatrist right there on the spot. You just had the feeling like mm -hmm. this is this is it. There's something interesting happening here. Something really interesting, right? Exactly. Yeah. And when in that path did you learn about dissociation? 
And I was a psychiatric resident, a second year of my training. I had a patient who was admitted to the inpatient unit that I was working on, who happened to have DID. It was a a male patient of all things. And Rick Cluft um, was an attending at that hospital. And he agreed to supervise me with this case. I did not know that. Yeah, it was just that's why I just learned some really basic things about he had a really short stay, but I just learned a lot about the idea of dissociation, what dissociation was. And it was kind of interesting to me that this patient um, died, actually, maybe five or six years later. Mm-hmm. And he was and he was found someplace. He was an alcoholic. A lot of bad things were going on with him. And he had my card still in his wallet. Oh, so wow. when they found him, they, I got a call, asked you know, saying that he had deceased and they didn't know where any of his family members was were. Mm-hmm. So I was able to remember which, which town he was from and give them some information about how they would find his family. But it was just interesting to me that all those years later, he still had my card in his wallet. It meant that we had yeah. made this connection, which was, which was moving in many ways. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I can imagine that. I mean, I'm projecting a little bit here, but I can imagine someone like feeling really understood for what's going on with them. It was probably the first time anyone paid attention to his trauma history. You know, yeah. What that meant for him. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's really powerful. It's really sad and really moving at the same time, right? Like that here you are five years later in his wallet. <laughs> exactly. So. So is that how you found the ISSTD then through Cluft? No, actually, I, I, I didn't keep up with Cluft after that. But many, many years later, when I was had moved to San Francisco by then, I was working on the inpatient unit and seeing um, patients who were clearly in a dissociated state and just looking for more information about it, looking to see if there was any support for people treating dissociation that I came upon the ISSTD. Mm. So it was, was even, it was even later than that, that I actually decided to join, not till 2012. But uh, uh, I was just out in the, felt like I was out in the wilderness trying to figure it out myself, looking for, for, looking for more information. I hear that from a lot of people in terms of finding the ISSTD and going, okay, I'm, working with trauma, I'm seeing this thing, I'm not really sure how to work with it. You know, I've heard of people trying to refer out and then clients or patients saying like, no, I want to work with you. And so they're like, okay, I've got to find this training somewhere, but it's not something that's really made it into, you know, most training programs, whether they're master's level or doctorate or MD programs. It's not something, you you know, most psychiatrists are actually trained to ignore patients trauma history. It's just not something you talk to them about. It's actually something you change the subject when it comes up. That's really interesting. So it's more about the symptomology with the symptoms that are showing up mm-hmm. and what medication can respond to those exactly. symptoms. Exactly. So let's like go out of the narrative and come back to how can I help your body get the medication it needs. Right. You know, I even had a colleague who once admitted to me that he never gave anyone a diagnosis that he couldn't treat with a medication. So if, if there wasn't the medication to treat it, he never, never considered it in the diagnostic. No. That's so interesting. So it just 
takes out anything where we don't have a medical answer right. or right. A, a prescription answer for. Yeah. Oh, wow. That There's a lot in that. <laughs> there's a lot in that in terms of diagnostics, in terms of the field of psychiatry and, the, exactly. and you know, communication between fields. Like how do we, if we don't have a diagnosis for something, well, then what do we do with it, right? And I right. think that's, a, you know, a lot of what I learned from your talk too is how trying to filter things into certain diagnoses without that context of the trauma history, which is something that, you know, is kind of big in, in my own mind and world as well. Like if we, if we're not paying attention to that, then we just see these pieces, right? We don't really see the whole picture. Exactly. So I'm curious because you've helped a lot of people directly that are working with complex trauma, working with dissociation. What are some of the really common symptoms or diagnoses or experiences mm -hmm. you see? What are the challenges that people come to you with? Well, it, you know, it's in my office, it's quite different from on the inpatient unit. On the inpatient unit, we saw, I saw a lot of people present with sort of agitation and sort of like a, some sort of trance-like state, yeah. responding to internal stimuli, um, being very disorganized. And, um, um, one of the most striking cases was a woman who came in um, with very disorganized speech, mm -hmm. and um, and as as I began to talk to her, it seemed to me that she was in, in a dissociative trance. Yeah. So I kind of gave her permission to tell me her story, and as she told me her story, a significant trauma history, she began to organize. Right? And what I, what I realized she was doing is she was speaking in metaphor. Mm. And so as she told her story, she began to organize and became completely lucid and had this horrific story of childhood trauma and about spending many, many years sitting on her back porch lost in a fantasy that she was in this place called Angel's Landing, right? Shocked at having had an angel above her bed as a child and how she would just start praying to that angel. And, and uh, she'd, 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 I think she'd even gone to Harvard or something and had to drop out um, mm. because her, her illness got really bad. And uh, it was interesting because I, um, I was working with a resident at the time and there were other residents on the unit. And so one of the residents brought her attending to interview the patient towards the end, someone who was a skeptic without a doubt. And again, the patient was totally disorganized. Wow. And, for, and in talking to her, what was really important for her was permission to speak because her main abuser had been her brother, who her parents had put up on a pedestal and never allowed her to tell them what he was doing to her. So she didn't have permission to speak. And so in my giving her permission to speak, she was able to organize herself. And I, and just before discharge, when she was very lucid again and ready to go, and her husband came up thanking us for getting his wife back to him, um, speaking to this other uh, clinician who she didn't feel she had permission to speak, she was again a total disorganized word salad. That speaks so many volumes, even just in, with what you just said of psychiatrists being trained to 
divert from the, the narrative and how powerful it was for this, how you know, self-organizing it was for this person to have that permission to speak. And you know, I'd imagine this isn't the only person who's had experiences like that where there's the silencing and, you know, not a safe space to mm-hmm. just kind of let it flow through and express and have someone witness that and have someone believe and support it or even just be there. Mm-hmm. I hear you. So I saw a lot of that on the inpatient unit, people who would get better. And then I would be trying to talk to their outpatient team about the fact that they were trauma survivors. And it was so frustrating because no one ever took that thought that, that seriously. And so they would come back over and over again, you know, and, get, and um, you know, it was really tragic. I was very painful. It can be hard to be in a system that's not trauma-informed or not trauma-aware and to be aware and to see all these impacts and to not necessarily be in a position to change that systemically, right? Mm-hmm. To say, hey, can we, you know, make this care a little even more? Even one-on-one, even just with one. But, you know, um, I really, really, um, I had so many of those experiences. And um, I did feel that in many cases, just just the one experience of being listened to made enough of a difference so they could go out in, in a new way. Yeah. 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 It makes me think just about your recent talk and how you were outlining how many people diagnosed with schizophrenia and psychosis, they're actually experiencing reactions, probably common reactions to trauma and dissociation. Can you talk a little bit more about what you've seen there and how maybe in your mind you would differentiate, oh, this person is presenting more with schizophrenia, this person's di- presenting more with dissociative symptoms? Mm-hmm. Well, I actually feel that you almost can't know at the beginning, right? Yeah. And um, so you meet, so on the inpatient unit, um, it, it, it was um, sort of allowing them their story to unfold. Because that, that's what I found. Once you gave them the permission to tell their story, they would tell their story and you would see them organize around it. So these were very, very disorganized people in very, very chaotic situations, uh, very, very acutely ill. Mm-hmm. And you could see them get better in like a couple of weeks and you'd be astounded at how they could organize around telling their story. Um, when you're working with outpatients, it's usually people who are not as sick, right? So mm-hmm. you don't see that level of pathology uh, in, in the outpatient setting. What I see as an outpatient psychiatrist, more often than people with the diagnosis of schizophrenia, what I see is people with the diagnosis of bipolar disorder yeah. who have a lot of rage, yeah. And, and psychiatrists very often uh, see rage as mania, and they can't see it as anything other than mania. So the diagnosis of mania, uh, I have so many patients who have bipolar disorder, who, and it takes a while to tease these symptoms out. 
right? Sometimes it takes years. I never tell them that they don't have bipolar disorder or that they shouldn't take their meds. I just start talking to them about this story. And it's not uncommon to find over time, sometimes over years, you get the sense that there's dissociation and there's trauma in this, but it takes a while for it all to come together. And that's been my experience working with clients individually too, is that it takes a long time for these things to come together. And, and sometimes it takes a long time to tell different parts of the story or, or different aspects, whether that's that they're available in memory or that they just quote unquote, don't feel important in the moment. And then at some point later on, there's, you know, a level of trust or vulnerability or a level of, they become more central mm-hmm. um, and sort of naturally integrate. I'm curious with, with the inpatient work, did you ever see the storytelling or the narrative? Did, did that ever, did you ever see that be too triggering for people? I'm kind of thinking about EMDR and when people go into processing and sometimes it unpacks too much. Did that happen or did it just seem to be well, more that there was such a need? These are people who were already disorganized. Right. Already completely. Um, yeah. Um, um, they'd already fallen apart. It was all unpacked already. Right. Yeah. Something had already words. broken them yeah. down. Right. Yeah. And so, um, I, I, so you might think that um, asking them about their trauma history um, might um, make things worse, but not with that particular population. Yeah. I, I worked with um, outpatients. I worked for a while in an outpatient homeless um, facility where they did case management, housing case management for the homeless. And that was a population that was very sort of put together in this way of being homeless, right? Huh. And so they, uh, so uh, in the beginning, one of the reasons I went to work for, with that population was because I had to stop from my inpatient work that a good portion of the homeless were actually trauma survivors. And I mm-hmm. thought it might be 40, 50% or something. I worked with that population for several years. And by the end of my time working with them, I came to believe it was probably 90%. And people yeah. who wouldn't report a trauma history when you first knew them, as they began to trust you, yeah. um, would begin to acknowledge it. And I didn't see myself as doing trauma work with them, really, because that just really wasn't possible in a situation where they were so unsafe and had so few few supports. Really, um, so it it was another frustrating time where you had these really sick patients who really needed a lot, but you were just not in the position to be able to provide that for them. Although I did manage to put together a group therapy with a, a small handful of them who were at the place where they could sort of talk a little bit, a bit with each other and process the meaning mainly of, of the trauma, not the specific details of the trauma, but what, how, how they can um, come to terms with what it means about who they are and, and, and what, 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 what is their self-worth in, in, in the context of what's happened to them and can they pull a sense of worth for themselves to begin to create a life for themselves. That's mm-hmm. the kind of work I tended to do with those patients, but many of them were quite fragile to tell you the truth. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and you go in thinking, oh, 40, 50% trauma history, and then you go, mm, maybe 90 plus. <laughs> right. right. And, you know, I had that experience in uh, working in juvenile halls too, where you know, if you look at the case files, oh, there's maybe 60% reported history of sexual abuse, and then you start working and you're like, maybe it's 70, maybe it's 80, maybe let's just assume it's 100 just to be safe so that we're not. Right. And really bad situations where the, you're like, this person didn't have a chance from the start, right? Yeah. Look, at, yeah. look at the situation into which they were born. There was just um, no escaping it. No yeah. way that they were going to escape it. Yeah. And that's that's something big to be up against you know, as one clinician coming in, and it sounds like what you could do in that circumstance was to tap into that sense of worth, right? Like, okay, well, let's connect. Okay, maybe there were these things that happened, but what about how you think and feel about yourself? And where is the sense of self-worth? And can we connect and maybe create some narrative around that? Because that's what I find myself talking about with patients more than anything else, how a history of childhood trauma leaves them feeling as if they don't have worth. The yes. message they get from the way they're treated is that they don't have any worth whatsoever. And yeah. so how can we help them build a sense of that worth when they, they've never had a relationship with anybody who's made them feel like they have worth. And so quite often that becomes the therapeutic relationship, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what you're speaking to, I can think of, you know, and I think we're going to go there in a moment in a larger systemic sense, too, where if you're brought up in a culture that's not valuing any group that you're a part of or any way that you identify or present, well, then how does that pass down this message of I'm not worthy or I'm less than or, or what, however those words show up, some kind of feeling, I think, of disempowerment or something along those lines. Right, right, right. So, so, you know, my, my work with uh, the inpatients got me trying to understand how there could be a relationship between the severe symptoms of psychosis that I was seeing that seemed to be trauma-related. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I was working at that time at San Francisco General Hospital, which had cultural focus units. So at that time, I was on the black focus unit. And the Black Film Focus Unit was sort of interested in, in, in Black and African-American and Black issues, but it certainly wasn't a unit that was just Black patients. It was all patients of all kinds. Mm -hmm. And all the units were like that. But um, I just was, began to think, how is it that all these Black patients are coming onto the unit with such symptoms of psychosis? What am I seeing? And that's when I came upon a paper out of London where they 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 actually said they found this incredibly elevated rate of quote unquote schizophrenia mm -hmm. in uh, the the poor immigrant populations around London, and to my amazement, they found that that um, the darker your skin, the more likely you were to be psych psychotic, and that dark skinned immigrants from places like um, the Caribbean. Have had 10 times the rate of schizophrenia than white native-born Londoners. And that was just mind-boggling to me. I'm like, how could that, that be, right? So I just started research. And so the interesting thing about the papers is they came to the conclusion that it was not genetic, that it had something to do 
with the neighborhood environment. Mm-hmm. And this particular paper looked at social capital. They and they used um, voter turnout to be a proxy for social capital. Okay. They found that um, the best predictor of psychosis in these London neighborhoods was was vote was voter turnout. The lower the voter turnout, the lower the social capital in a neighborhood, the more likely uh, the uh, the darker-skinned immigrants were to be psychotic. Wow. And they found things like if you live in a neighborhood um, where there are fewer people like you, you are more li- likely to be psychotic. Um, they call that the um, ethnic density effect. The less dense your your people were in your neighborhood, the more likely you were to be psychotic, right? And um, and all kinds of information like this really pointed to the fact that it was the social conditions in the neighborhoods that was yes. driving the rates of schizophrenia, rather than some sort of genetic loading and they found that when those immigrant groups, there was no increase, for instance, in the rates of psychosis in their native countries. Yeah. And they also found that when they immigrated to countries that were not dominated by a white power structure, they also had no elevated rates of, 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 Interesting. of psychosis. Right? And they didn't just find this in London. They were finding this in all over the world, in the United States and other parts of Europe. There were just an, an avalanche of studies looking at, um, at um, immigration and, and um, they would call it a social defeat yeah. and psychosis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I want to pull that uh, one or more of those studies and put them in the show notes because I, I pulled from your presentation uh, dissociative disorders are 10 times more prevalent in the general population. So 11.4 versus right, exactly. 0.4 so, right. to 0.7. So then, then schizophrenia. Then schizophrenia. Right, 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 right. And then in some dark skinned minority populations, it was 10 times the rate exactly. of schizophrenia. Right. right? Right. as compared to white populations. Right. Exactly. So that really speaks so speaks volumes and then and then what you just said too that the rates of schizophrenia actually increase as the person's skin darkens. Um right. And you could say, oh is there some sort of genetic loading for dark skin? And uh and I actually was um, that's what I learned. I learned schizophrenia was a genetic illness and that um and for instance, um, and, and it, the fact that, that more black people were um, diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, for a lot of people, just meant that more black people were um, genetically predisposed to schizophrenia. A lot of the colleagues, particularly on the Black Focus Unit and, and that I was working with, the idea was that maybe it was some sort of dis- misdiagnosis based on racial bias that was causing it. And... As I began to look at this new data, I began to think that the reason this this disparity existed was because of the high rates of discrimination and social defeat in dark-skinned populations that was being, and because psychiatrists had no 
pay no attention to trauma or dissociation. They were just completely missing it and mm-hmm. seeing those, those, that, those, that disorganization, those responding to internal stimuli, they were seeing that as equal to schizophrenia and saying these people all have schizophrenia without even really thinking beyond that because they had no, they were not including any dissociative disorders in their differential diagnosis. So if we're talking about differential diagnosis or even someone listening that's not a mental health clinician that's like trying to help a family member or a friend or something, what, how do you see, what are some of the symptoms you see show up that initially look like schizophrenia, but then when you go a layer deeper, actually relate to trauma? And can you kind of make that connection for us? Well, they might be hearing voices, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and quite often, um, these patients will be hearing voices and a variety of different kinds of voices and maybe an overwhelming number of voices in their head that many times they will deny hearing because I've had patients say, I thought everybody heard voices, right? Uh, so that they, or they'll be fearful of being diagnosed as crazy, quote unquote, so, so yeah. they'll, they'll deny it. So many patients will deny it. So you might see some behavior that looks bizarre to you and um and and they might be be disorganized um but i would say the number one um symptom is hearing voices yeah but i also see people who develop what seems like a delusional system um like this lady who you know in her mind she was in this place called angel's landing where they spent all day scanning the globe, looking for people who were in distress and saving them, right? I mean, that was what she spent all of her day doing. And I had another patient who came in after the suicide of his father, um, believing that he was in a, uh, uh, he was the center, he was like in a Truman Show type thing where everyone was was was, was watching him. Right? Wow. And, you know, uh, he, he talked about this initially being a fantasy that he would indulge in because it was um, was it was sort of comforting to be the center of attention like, like that in his mind. And he talks about in childhood how he used to lie in the, in the grass and pretend that he was just one of the many blades of grass. And that was, was comforting. So he sort of went from this um, fantasy place where he was one of many blades of grass to the being the center, the center from one of many to the to the center, and then in the aftermath of, of his father's suicide, it took on a kind of a sinister role where people were mm. where it was it was now a frightening thing for him, and when you ask him, well, what is the frightening thing, and he says, well, they're all trying to give me a message, right? They're all sending me this message. And what is the message that they're sending him? That he shouldn't eat sugar. And why shouldn't he eat sugar? He shouldn't eat sugar because he'll get diabetes like his father. Yeah. Like his father, right? And again, he was someone who, um, it just went away, right? His, his, His concern that he was in the Truman Show, or he was the center of attention, just sort of evaporated as he talked about his life. And he and his father had had a disagreement just before his father's death. 
And so, I mean, it, it was just clear how, and you know, this whole idea of just, of, they call it maladaptive daydreaming. Yeah. Because I do think that maladaptive daydreaming as a dissociative spectrum issue can itself morph into what seems like a delusional system. Yes. And so a psychiatrist who's told, don't listen to the trauma history, is just going to hear, oh, you're hearing voices, checkbox. Oh, sounds like you're delusional, check. Mm-hmm. And so I can see how it'd be really easy mm-hmm. for someone who's, who's presenting with some kind of dissociative experience, even if it's not, I mean, it could be DID or... could be know, like just dissociative disorder NOS, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It could be not otherwise specified. It could be specified DID. It could be some dissociative experience. And then it just shows up in this way where if you don't have that context of complex trauma and dissociation and you just hear the symptoms and you're just looking at these diagnoses, you go, oh, check, check, check. Yeah, because as I I say, um, there's evidence that um, people with DID have more um, first-rank Schneiderian symptoms, which are considered symptoms of psychosis, than people with, with schizophrenia, by far. By maybe, maybe the averages of two or three with people with schizophrenia, it might be five or six people with, with dissociative identity disorder. So that's a really important differential diagnosis. And I know, you know, some of the folks listening are, are in the mental health world are in a place where they can say, okay, let's really look at this in our, you know, our intakes or for our community-based services or for the clinic or for the hospital. Let's kind of start to look at this a little bit more. And, and I think, you know, education on dissociation, like we were saying earlier, is lacking in a lot of places. So, do you have, is there anywhere, I remember seeing, maybe it was at a, another conference, I don't remember where or when, but I remember seeing some plenary talking about this at some point, just differentiating dissociation and psychosis. Well, there's an explosion in, in the literature in the past yeah. few years. When I was at San Francisco General, I used to, people say, you know, five or 10 years from now, no one is going to be disputing this fact because yeah. I was beginning to see yeah. These studies coming out in, in in the literature, and now there's been this huge expo- exp- explosion of studies looking at this issue, and so, I mean, I think this is like the the thing that's swelling up from the ground, becoming obvious to everybody that there's a definite link between childhood trauma, childhood sexual abuse, and particularly neglect, where the child has no one to go to. Yeah, and dissociative symptoms and well and and psychosis right and my theory is that it is the dissociative spectrum illness that is the thing that mediates these symptoms that appear to be schizophrenia appear to be psychosis have you worked with anyone where you feel like maybe it's not disclosed or you don't find out about it where it just feels different? Like, oh, this feels like a different presentation of psychosis or schizophrenia where you're like, these feel very dissociative, but these feel different somehow, like there might be some other pathway? I do think, um, uh, I, I, and I wouldn't, what, 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 I, what, I, what I would see a lot is a type of a schizoid person who rather than actually having 
a wealth of emotions seems to actually be devoid of emotions devoid mm. of um the, the desire to, to 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 connect when you talk to them there's a kind of an emptiness and the and the emptiness is different from a trance state not a trance state type emptiness but a qualitatively different kind of not there not interested in I guess the, the sort of schizoid personality that they talk about. Mm-hmm. There is, a, and, and it's hard to describe it exactly, but you could easily see a person who's in a dissociative trance state to be in that state. But if you understand what a dissociative trance is, then they actually do look quite different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like it's that qualitative, it feels yeah. different too. And then being in the presence of it, you're like this. There's another flavor happening here. I'm not but sure. But if the person is very foreign to you, if there's someone who you don't connect with their skin color, their nationality, their sexual orientation, their religious background, is very different from yours, then you don't reach out to them in the way that you would someone who's familiar. And you can't yes. pick up on that qualitative difference. Yes. So that's another way, I mean, when you talk about structural racism and social defeat and you look at, you know, who has more access to education here in the States or maybe probably in the UK and many places in the world, or, you know, if someone's looking for psychological support or treatment or you know, even an inpatient setting, like, are they going to get someone who already feels connected to them based on these, mm-hmm. you know, those factors that you just went through, these nth factors of identity or culture or uh, skin color or, or assumption, like, is there going to be that sense like, oh, as a, as a provider, I feel like I get this person or as a patient, I feel like this person gets me. Or for whatever I, reason. I have empathy for this person. Here's a person whose schizophrenia is a really bad diagnosis. And I would really prefer this person not to have schizophrenia. So I'm going to withhold that diagnosis until I get to know them a little better. Rather than, mm-hmm. I don't understand this person at all. They, I don't, they, they, they're scary to me. Right? Yeah. Sure, I'm sure this person has schizophrenia. And I don't have the same um, need to give them the benefit of the doubt and to make and to rule out everything else before I just, just, just end there, you know. So that's where implicit bias comes in. That's where, you know, assumption and just sort of lack of, I don't know, cross-cultural connection or lack of, you know, whatever, you know, I'm thinking even when I picture SF General, I've been in there a few times with different clients and things. And there's also like the potential for socioeconomic kind of miss, right? Like these are like, these are um, the, poverty-stricken, very often they're homeless, very mm-hmm. often. And also, because San Francisco has this huge immigrant population, they mm-hmm. might not even speak the language. They, they come from totally different cultures. So um, all of these things play, play a role in it. Someone who's just different. So if they're too different, you have difficulty having empathy. Mm-hmm. Unless you decided that what you want to be is empathic to people who are different, right? Mm-hmm. You almost have to decide that you're going to do that. 
It's so interesting because what you're describing is making me think too of, you know, when I used to work in a um, wraparound school for kids right after they were getting off of probation. So they were juveniles, they had been incarcerated, they were kind of going back out and into a, a wraparound therapeutic school. And I remember there were all these adults there and we would always just say like, whoever has a connection with this person, roll with it. Like we've got the psychiatrist, we've got the counselors, we've got the youth support, the enrichment, the activities, the parenting specialists, we've got all these people, we've got the substance abuse counselors, all these people in the building, the probation officers, and we're all as adults just trying to be like, oh, they're talking to you? Great, <laughs> like for whatever reason. And I feel like some of those connections they would hear you like playing a song while you were driving up to work and they liked that song. And so, you know, the kid would just say, Hey, and start talking to you and start opening up. It could be this like seemingly random connection, mm. but there just had to be, we didn't even always know what it was, but there would be something like, Oh, you always have the type of gum that I like to choose. So I'm going to come to your office and ask for your, for a stick of gum or, mm. you know, Oh, your last name is the same as my cousins. And so it, right. it could be, almost anything you really like, I really like the shirts you wear, but, but once there was like this little thread and I'm thinking of that in this, you know, picturing someone in the hospital, you know, sort of interviewing someone trying to get a diagnosis going, it's like any little connection, like, Oh, you like the X-Files? I like the X-Files, whatever it is. Uh, that then sort of shifts things, right? Right. From, but, but, but the connection could be, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say yes. rather than I have this checklist of questions yes. that I'm wanting you to answer. And I'm not really, I don't have time, you know, for you to say more than that. So please don't go on. Just answer these questions. And then I assess you based on how you answer questions on my time frame. Right. Yeah. So that brings up a word that I think is circles around again and again, just curiosity, like this, this curiosity of like, who are you? And right. tell, tell me about yourself. And it's so powerful to hear you tell the stories of how self-organizing it was for, for people who are showing up with these really, you know, severe behaviors and presentations and maybe even seeming scary to some people. I don't know exactly how they're ending up in the hospital, but you know, we can it's imagine. Usually because they're acting out, right? We get brought yeah. in on a 5150 because Someone, either the family member or the police, or someone has some. Somebody pointed them out as being strange or scary or, or crazy or any number of things, right? They called out some attention, right? And so, but then if you kind of get curious about that, like what's going on here and who are you and tell me about yourself or keep talking with whatever's on your mind. Um, I mean, I can even think in, you know, walking around, sometimes I've walked by people, I'm assuming them to be homeless, who are just talking about something, you know, and there's no one really there directly listening. But I have the immediate thought, like, who are you saying that to in your mind? And what happened exactly. to you? And what are you, what memory are you responding to exactly. in this moment? Right. And I think if, and that's, you know, someone who's the daughter of a trauma therapist and has had a lot of trauma training. So it's like, I think if we come with that. Yeah. I, you know, I think one of the most important when people say what's trauma informed care. And I do think the most important aspect of trauma informed care is instead of asking what's wrong with you, it asks what's happened to you. Right. Yeah. And that's a hugely different way of, of approaching diagnosis. Absolutely. 
you know, if we ask what happened and we can even add on to that, like what's right about this? How does this fit? Like even dissociation, it's, it's keeping you alive. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's something, something right about that. There's some, some strength in that as well. And so. You know, I think yeah. people, I think what, let's say you come from a terrible um, childhood and you run away from home and you dissociate the, the streets. Okay. For you then, because you can, dissociate and go and live under a bridge right yeah and then you're in this dissociative world and you can tolerate it you can stay there for years yeah yeah so how does attachment connect to all of this you talked a little bit about that in your presentation i think that the the way attachment attachment almost becomes the um the process by which trauma is trans goes across the generations it's mm. transgenerational because if you are raised in abuse and neglect right then um you have no idea how to parent and parenting is overwhelming so then yeah. you have it and you so you're you're you have an insecure disorganized attachment and then you're, you're going out into this world that's traumatizing you further. And then you have a child that you have no idea how to connect with. So then now you're starting a second generation with an insecure, disorganized attachment that is going to then go out into the world themselves and experience all different kinds of social defeat based and discrimination based on what their circumstances are, right? Mm -hmm. And then it'll just go on to the next generation. So it is this attachment disruption that then enable, that makes it so that a, a person cannot parent, right? And mm -hmm. then that's how it gets transmitted to the next generation and the next generation. And it's not just, you know, verbal, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, it's also neglect. It's neglect is a huge part of it because if you you know, if you are not neglected, then you don't need to rely on your innate sense of dissociation to cope in childhood. It is that child who's being abused and that there's no one there yeah. to help them. That then is forced to rely on whatever innate dissociative abilities they have as a way to cope yeah so i think so people say well why doesn't everybody who gets abused have dissociative get a dissociative disorder because just being uh, being abused is not enough it's being it's the abuse in the context of neglect yeah and not having those social supports not having you know a parent who has learned how to parent or has had that experience mm -hmm. being able to pass that down or not having a parent who's you know having a parent who's not present for economic reasons or whatever other things mm -hmm. right just mm -hmm. that absence mm -hmm. has as much of an impact as the presence of these other right. negative things yeah so i'm curious then if people maybe in in the hospital setting or maybe this is more so related to your your private practice now but how does this show up? Like, what are people, what kind of healing are people asking for or looking for when they come and find you? 
so often people want a psychiatrist who will listen to them, right? Yeah. Not just rush to the prescription pad. Because I get a lot of patients who've, who've been treated with every single medication under the sun over the past 10 years, right? And they're yeah. no better. And the psychiatrist who was treating them has said, literally, I don't know what to offer you anymore, right? I, I don't know what to do for you. And they start looking for someone else. Or, the, or maybe the psychiatrist gets, gets, gets frustrated because you're not getting better. You must not be compliant. It must be what are you doing to not be compliant, to not get better. So they, so the, the, they leave and find somebody new. And um, so usually when I get, I get a patients who've been through many different treatment providers and they're still looking for, for, for help. And then they, they stumble upon me. And then what do you feel like you, I think you've already started to describe this, but what do you feel like you provide that's different? I provide them uh, someone who listens to what they feel is wrong, right? I don't say, what are your symptoms and, and, and take this medication and come back in three months or one month. I say, well, come back and see me in two weeks. And we can talk mm. about this further and figure, you know, sometimes they want me, sometimes they want medication and I, and I try to figure out what they've been on and what what could possibly help them. And sometimes I have to say, you know what? Not all of these, not all symptoms get better with medications. And you might just have symptoms that don't get better with medications. We're going to have to figure out some non-medication ways to help you, right? I bet that's surprising for some people to hear. And so sometimes the people are, are, are new to treatment. And it seems to me that they might have a um, social disorder as part of what's going on, but they want medication. That's what they want. And so I go that route with them. And sometimes it might take a couple of years, right, of saying, of talking to them and saying, well, what, what's going on at home? You know, what's happening? Developing a relationship with them while medications aren't working. Yeah. And then uh, we can say, sometimes I send them to TMS. The depression has a response to medication. Let's try TMS or something and see if that'll help. Because I don't want to send someone down, someone who's reluctant to talk about their, their childhood history. I don't want to start them down that road at all if we don't have to. If we can find something that's going to treat the depression and the anxiety, let's, let's try that first, right? Yeah. Some people are me really still wanting medication. Other people, I don't want medication. I just want someone who, who will listen to me, you know? Yeah. So it's very, it depends on, on the person. And when you say TMS, that's the transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yeah. And, you know, to, sometimes I'm surprised that it helps. Yeah. And so you're really listening not just to the story, but to what your patient, your client wants. And, and what they've already, what kind of treatments they've already had. Yeah. Right. Has it been helpful? Has it not been helpful? What makes it better? What makes it worse? Right, exactly. So what would you say to someone who's struggling right now, or even someone who knows someone who's struggling with psychosis or schizophrenia, and maybe they're wondering, huh, what happened to this person? And they're starting to go down that path. What would, how maybe could they explore this a little bit more? Well, um, you know, lots of times having someone to listen uh, helps, right? And so one of the things I quite often do with some success is if there's a family member, right, 
that you can educate in in the how a trauma history affects a person and how um, being able to listen to them um, um, might also help then you actually you provide because I've always thought that the recovery from from trauma requires safety right you can't let go of your dissociative coping strategies if you're in an unsafe environment yeah and so helping them figure out how to provide a safe environment for themselves or supporting them through to the point where they can get their own safe environment or helping their the family members that are interested in helping them provide a safe environment do so. So, so much of what you do in the beginning is helping that person be in a safe space so that they can begin to question the need for these dissociative coping strategies. Mm-hmm. And then what do you wish just for the field of mental health along these lines? What do you hope? Well, I think it's already beginning to happen, but it's, but it's being becoming increasingly clear that we can't ignore dissociation. Can't dis- ignore dissociative symptoms. And just the, the, the paper... I mean, you know, the, the work that's being done by, by, by researchers to sort of point, to point out how you can see dissociation in the brain, how you can understand it as a brain process is really, really helping, right? Developing biomarkers for dissociation so that those people who are skeptical of it can feel more comfortable uh, that it actually exists and they can uh, feel more comfortable than Again, I'm giving people that diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. And I also think that very psychiatrists had abandoned psychotherapy. Everyone thought we were going to get the medication. We don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. But that's people, it, it's sinking in that that is not the case. It might not ever be the case. And that psychiatrists need to have other tools in their arsenal. So these things are all happening As I sort of, 10 years ago when I was in the wilderness, looking at the fledgling studies that were coming out, it just seemed to me that we were going to eventually get here. Yeah. And what stands out to me too from everything you're saying is how important it is to be listened to Mm -hmm. and how important it is to recognize the impact of being socially excluded or put down or looked down upon or because, you know, right, because because a lifetime of social defeat yes is can, can force a person into dissociative coping strategy right because they're trying to find a way just like in a family if there's mm-hmm. abuse and no one to turn to mm-hmm. in a larger system if there's abuse and exploitation and no one to turn to, well, what's that, you know, trickle down the line of coping skills. Eventually it gets to dissociation, which then presents as schizophrenia or psychosis. And then. And the other thing I also just want to say really briefly is I see a lot of attention deficit disorder. Yeah. That is also a dissociative process. People who just, people who have attention deficit disorder and they dissociate. And when they're under stress and in, and they're in the sort of their dissociation is heightened, suddenly their ADHD medication no longer works. It doesn't work anymore? It stops working. Wow. Right. 
That is so, so interesting. Yes, it is. How do you understand that? I, I sort of imagine that there's a, the place in, in the brain that's sort of hypoactive in attention deficit disorder mm-hmm. might be a, a similar place where people who dissociate use to distance themselves from their yes. surrounding. And so it's, it's involving the same brain mechanisms, but maybe from a different pathway. I love this, Heather. This is like what Lauren Lebois was presenting too a little bit. Um, some of the fMRI and neuroimaging studies with dissociation with it actually being, you know, really hyper frontal activity like that the lid is really tight on the can instead of it being you know something you can turn when you want it's like sealed in there and so it would be that that focus that would come with it that's really interesting Mm -hmm. i hope we get some more um research and yeah i've not seen this in the literature but i have had five or six clients now and i would try to increase their attention deficit medication to no benefit so then it began to dawn on me to start talking to them about how they were coping. And I would find that it is at those times when they're feeling overwhelmed, those days when they're overwhelmed by their, it's like the, the children or the work stress or something like that, it gets particularly hot, that they suddenly their medication doesn't work. And so helping them figure that out and figuring out coping strategies to, to to organize their their day better so they're under less stress. Like I have a patient who's the mother of three children and she thinks that she's supposed to multitask and she thinks that it's normal that everyone else can multitask. Why can't she? I'm like, I'm like no one can, well, you can't be cooking on the stove, your child in the high chair and your other three children. You don't, shouldn't expect that you should be able to focus on all those three things at the same time. Yeah. So give yourself a break. Step outside. It's true. When I do step outside and calm down, then I do feel like my medication is working again. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is really fascinating in terms of like level of arousal, in terms of your nervous system, in terms of what your brain's doing, in terms of just that sense, even like you were talking about a little bit earlier of like self-confidence. I mean, you were talking about self-worth earlier, but it's almost like can is there something I can do in this moment? And what are my expectations of myself? If the expectation is for you to be able to respond to three kids at once while cooking dinner, there's a little bit of that like super mom mentality mm-hmm. out there. Like I'm mm-hmm. supposed to be able to, or super parent, I'm supposed to be able to do it all. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, <laughs> You'll do one thing at a time and you one might task switch. Right. Let's just do that. Let's, let's but, try that tactic. Right? Yeah. And you know, she, it, it was very helpful for her. Yeah. Right. So in terms of changing this pattern and changing the outcomes for these patients, it's about listening to people. It's about being attuned to symptoms of dissociation. It's about understanding how trauma impacts people. And, and also racial trauma, discrimination, and social defeat. Yes. That is actually traumatic. Yes. What that does to, so and imagine a dissociative process where you need to separate yourself from a lifetime because it's so painful it's to so be continuously painful. mistreated. Exactly. And I would hope that most people, I mean, I'm assuming a lot of people listening to this have mm-hmm. that empathy, but I would hope that most people could get, it's really painful to be continuously mistreated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and then from there, we can 
kind of make the next step to, well, how do, how do we respond to trauma and what's kind of last line of defense? And this is where it just, Heather makes so much sense. And when you were presenting the other day, I was just like, you just lay it out, right? It's just like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That's what I try to do, right? You did it really well. And I mean, even just in conversation now, it makes mm-hmm. a ton of sense to me. And I'm really glad you're writing about this. I know you've published stuff recently. So you're uh-huh. and I, I, this, the presentation I gave at the ISSTD, I have actually submitted a, a version of that for to a, a publication. Hopefully yes. And get it published. Good. Mm-hmm. Well, keep me posted. I would love to read that and share that. And I'm curious as we wrap up, I mean, a lot of this stuff can be um, just really challenging, like being in the inpatient unit at SF General, you know, seeing and working with people who've just experienced a lot of abuse down the line and across generations had that neglect and abuse. Mm-hmm. So what what gives you a sense of hope with all this work that you're doing? That it's treatable. Yeah, and then the more we we um, the more we can recognize it, the more we can put our efforts into developing effective treatments. We're going to find that we can help people. But you know, um, Michael Salter and I wrote a paper on, and the reason we wrote it was because it was on the sort of prevention strategies. Because you know, um, wouldn't it be nice to prevent discrimination and social defeat? prevent yep. childhood trauma so you don't even have to treat it later on right yes yes it would it makes a lot more sense and mm-hmm. i know in a lot of conversations around prevention people are like well you can't measure it if it didn't happen yet and you're like but <laughs> you can measure how much you're how hard it is to try to respond to it it's possible mm-hmm. right. the treatment is there and it's possible but it's so much easier if we can just get in there a little sooner with a preventative lens. Provide sort of the social safety net needed to minimize this transgenerational um, reoccurrence of of trauma. Yeah. Well, I know you're writing about this. Definitely keep me posted. I know you've written and published some amazing work, so we'll put that in the show notes. Is there any other way that, you know, people might connect with you or your work? Well, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm old, so I'm not on social media, but, um, um, you know, I, 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 my work is on what it, on, on like academia or research. Mm-hmm. So if you look for me, you will find the different things that I've, I've written on those two sites. And, you know, as I write more, I would, I would put them up. Okay. Dr. Heather Hall. Thank you so much, Heather. I really appreciate you. you taking the time and spelling all this out and, you know, all the work that you've done um, for the ISSTD and, you know, for the community in San Francisco and in Sacramento and beyond. I just, I really appreciate your work. So thank you for being here and for sharing yourself with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much for listening. My hope is that you walk away from these episodes feeling supported. And like you have a place to come to find the hope and inspiration you need to take your next small step forward. I do want to make sure it's clear that this podcast isn't offering any prescriptions. It's not advice or any kind of diagnosis. Your decisions are in your hands, and we encourage you to consult with any relevant healthcare professionals you may need to support you through your unique path of healing. 
For more information and resources, please visit my website, howwecanheal.com. There, you'll find tons of helpful resources and the full transcript of each show. You can also click the podcast menu to submit requests for upcoming topics and guests. Before we wrap, I want to send thanks to our guests today, to Christine O'Donnell and Celine Baumgartner of Brightsided Podcasting, and to everyone who helped support this podcast, directly and indirectly. Alex, thanks for taking the dogs out while I record. I'd also like to give a shout out to my brother, Matt. He passed away in 2002. He wrote this music and recorded it, and it makes my heart so happy to share it with you now.